Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Up next, high-profile threats terrify a community. And there was nothing like this in living memory. The source of the threats can't be found. They're chasing a ghost at this point. Then, to everyone's horror, a family is brutally murdered. They were found strangled in their beds. They had ligature marks around their necks. Detectives employ an unusual tactic. They target the killer's use of language as a way to expose him. We are able to analyze and demonstrate what's going on in language evidence. And that's really in advance for for justice. I said, the Bible says if we chase God, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added. Joyce Meyer is one of the best-known televangelists in America, the head of an international empire that generates more than $100 million a year. She's an important leader in the evangelical movement. She connects particularly with women and people who come from difficult backgrounds and teaches them to build themselves up. Uh, And she uses Christianity as part of her message. Like many public figures, Joyce Meyer has personal security, and her team was headed up by ex-Marine Chris Coleman. It was a six-figure job and a perfect fit for the 32-year-old married father of two young boys. His dad was an evangelical minister. It was a born-again ministry. Growing up through Christ was a very big part of Chris Coleman's life. But Chris's dream job took a scary detour in the fall of 2008. He and other members of Joyce Meyer's staff began receiving threatening emails. These were directed not only at Joyce Meyer, but at Chris Coleman and his family. Five hateful emails appeared in the inbox of people at Joyce Meyer Ministry. These emails were so frightening. There's a line I'll never forget in one of them. I will kill them all in their sleep. Chris immediately told superiors of the threats to his family. He also told a neighbor, Justin Barlow. He was a local police officer. He knew this family. So when the threats came in, he wanted to help them. He was somebody who knew where their house was. He watched the house. Joyce Meyer Ministries stepped up security. But the email threats kept coming. In April of 2009, about six months after the first threat, 
the Coleman family found a message in their mailbox. And it says, this is your last warning. Your worst nightmare is about to happen. And it ends that way in all caps. The threat letter had no postmark, meaning it was dropped off in person. That would be a dangerous person who would show up in person at your mailbox. That would be somebody who would be stalking you. That would be somebody who should be in jail. The Coleman family was on edge, but attempted to live a normal life. Before dawn on May 5th, Chris followed his usual routine. He went to the gym for his early morning workout. About an hour later, he made a frantic call to his neighbor, Detective Justin Barlow. Chris was all panicky, saying that he had been working out and he hadn't been able to reach his wife. Could Barlow go over and check things out? Barlow called for backup, strapped on his gun, and went across the street to the Coleman's house. The detective could not enter the house. He found uh, an open window in the back of the house. Alarmed, Detective Barlow waited for backup to arrive. A few minutes later, Barlow and another officer entered through the open window. The house was silent, but something was clearly wrong. And they saw lurid red painted words on the walls. And it was like, bitch, you are punished, you have paid, things like that. The team made its way to the upstairs bedrooms and soon realized that whoever promised to harm the Coleman family had gone through with a threat. What they found was the most chilling thing any police officer would ever find, which would be two dead children and a dead wife. The story was shocking enough to everybody. I mean, just having to deal with the images of those kids, uh, I've never gotten over it. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Columbia, Illinois sits on the Mississippi River, across from St. Louis. Despite its proximity to the big city, it doesn't have a history of major crimes. So no one anticipated anything like the brutal murders of 31-year-old Sherry Coleman and her two sons, 11-year-old Garrett and his 9-year-old brother Gavin. Not only were the homes walled spray-painted with ominous messages, little Gavin's bed spray-painted with profanity as well, with the nine-year-old lying there in the bed. It was obvious that all three had been strangled. They all had the same kind of ligature marks. I think the thinking was that Sherry went first, and she did struggle. Sherry had a black eye and extensive defensive wounds. It was clear she fought for her life. There was no sign of a struggle with either of the boys. Chris Coleman, who had been at the gym for an early morning workout, arrived at his home to find police and first responders already there. Chris Coleman tried to get into the house and he was kept out of the house. And he was told there in the front yard that it was too late. 
They just said they didn't make it, Chris. And he kind of sank down and was sitting on the floor and he sobbed for a while and then he called his dad. And that always hit me hard because this man called his dad for comfort. Inside the house, police examined the messages spray painted on the walls. They were lurid, threatening, loaded with profanity, and were clearly linked to the threatening messages sent to the Coleman family and to Joyce Meyer Ministries. So it looked like there was some maniacal person who was out to kill her bodyguard. He was the person in charge of protecting her. He was a person in charge of her entire security. The spray-painted threats all over the house indicated a killer staging the scene, or a fanatic intent on sending a message, or both. There was even spray paint on one of the boys. The spray painting was so haphazard that some of it ended up on glass encasing a photograph on one of the walls. When you have spray paint on the wall, it's hard to extract that spray paint. But when spray paint is on glass, which it was on this case as it was on a picture, it's easier to take that spray paint that's on that glass and analyze it. Chris Coleman, as part of standard operating procedure, was brought in for questioning. He said he left his sleeping family before 6 that morning. Well, I set my alarm clock for 5.30 and used my phone for my alarm clock. And Chris's departure was recorded by a neighbor's security camera. He left the house at 5.43. Since he was apparently the last person to see his family before the murders, his police interrogation lasted hours. Detectives searched his phone and computers and got some information they hadn't expected. As the hours unfolded at the police station, it was revealed to Chris that they knew that he had an affair. While they were interviewing Chris, they actually had detectives going to Florida to interview his mistress. She was 31-year-old Tara Lintz, someone the Coleman's had known for years. Tara Lintz was Sherry's really, really close friend in high school, and they even looked alike. They were pretty, they both had dark, long hair. Chris met Tara through Sherry. They had stayed close. And she was still flirty. She was still single. When told of the murders, Tara Lintz immediately asked if she needed a lawyer, which investigators found suspicious. They found out very little from Tara, actually. They track her down in uh, Florida, where she was a cocktail waitress uh, at a dog track racing park. She didn't speak a lot, was not all that helpful to the case. A lot of information was coming into this case very quickly. But a major question remained unanswered. If the Coleman's were the target, why had one member of the family, presumably the primary target, survived? In the aftermath of his family's murders, a routine background check on Chris Coleman showed he'd been having a passionate extramarital affair with a family friend named Tara Lintz. The most important discovery about their affair was on Chris's own work laptop. They found in the trash a note that had all of Tara's likes and dislikes. He wrote November 5th as the day Tara changed my life. When confronted with evidence of the affair, Chris attempted to deny it. 
Chris Coleman starts to admit to this affair, but he refuses to call it an affair. He goes, it's not an affair. An affair is when you want to live together and you get married. But that's not the story Tara Lintz told police. She said Chris told her his marriage was over. He was promising her that he was going to get his vasectomy reversed so they could have a child together. They had a very torrid love affair. It was uh, something very intense and passionate. The problem for Chris was that if an extramarital affair ended his marriage, it would also end the job he loved. People had been saying that Chris was forced to do this because Joyce Meyer would have fired him for getting a divorce. That wouldn't have been the problem. The adultery would have. The possibility that Chris Coleman, a deeply religious, high-ranking member of Joyce Meyer's staff, had killed his own family was impossible for many to believe. But people who study what are known as family annihilators say that while it might not make sense to the general population, it makes perfect sense to the killers. In the family annihilation situation, there is a logic to that in and of itself. People are motivated by trying to get to a place that they view as less uncomfortable than the place they're in now. Even if the road they take isn't one that the average person would have thought was the rational or more comfortable way to go. Those who study this phenomenon say many family annihilators have convinced themselves that murdering their family is a more loving or humane option than the collapse of the family. Sometimes when we see parents killing children, the thought is that they're doing something for the kids. There are many instances where parents authentically believe that the kids will actually be better off not alive. And, of course, some family annihilators simply think they can get away with murder. I think there's a lot of, you know, potential ego involved there, because without that assuredness, you'd imagine one would not even attempt something like this, even if you had thought about it. Meanwhile, back in Illinois, the initial examination of the victim's bodies raised a host of questions. The bodies appeared to be in rigor mortis when they were found, according to the police. Rigor mortis, or post-mortem rigidity, starts soon after a person stops breathing. The lack of oxygen causes the muscles to stiffen. Depending on a number of factors, including ambient temperature, the stiffening generally begins about two hours after death. If Chris Coleman last saw his wife alive when he left the house at 5.43, and she was found in the beginning stages of rigor mortis about an hour later, then something appeared to be wrong with his story. People wondered, did Chris Coleman kill his family? People seemed to believe that it's always the husband. People seemed to believe that Chris Coleman was the guy. But we didn't have the evidence yet. But some crucial evidence was provided by Chris Coleman himself. He stuck to his timeline for the morning of the murders. When you left the house this morning, was your wife alive? Oh, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I think she was. She was. She was laying right beside me. By now, the victim's bodies had undergone further examination, and the times of death were estimated at about three in the morning, which put Chris, by his own account, in the house at the time of the murders. Listen, man. She wasn't alive. She was alive. She was. She was laying right beside me. We can go back and forth with this all day long, but the physical evidence doesn't lie. Since times of death would almost certainly be disputed at trial, 
detectives turned to other potential evidence, the spray paint at the scene. An analysis of the chemical structure and the color dyes yielded an identification. The brand was Rust-Oleum. Rust-Oleum was able to look at the binders and the resins in this paint and determine, oh, this is candy apple red. This is the type of paint it is based on that unique formula. Investigators were able to track credit card purchases right down to the time. They found Chris Coleman bought a particular brand of spray paint at a South County hardware store on February 9th at exactly 1.46 p.m. But, of course, lots of other people bought this paint. Investigators wanted something more definitive and found it buried deep in the messages that threatened the Coleman family with murder. The Coleman family murders had a set of clues not seen in many homicides, the words in the threat messages. Detectives turned to Robert Leonard, a highly regarded forensic linguist. Forensic linguistics is simply a term that we use when we apply the science of linguistics, which is a very well-established science, to matters of the law. So typically this could be anything in which language is the evidence. Leonard got into linguistics in an unusual way. He was an original member of the rock band, Sha Na Na, an opening act at Woodstock, and became fascinated by the language used in the band's contracts. We got signed to a record company, but we weren't getting the money that we thought our contract said we should. So I went to our lawyers and to my father, and they said, read the contract, read the contract. For the Coleman case, Leonard did what's known as a KQ analysis. K stands for documents for which the writer is known. Q stands for documents where authorship is in question. In Chris Coleman's writing before the murders, he regularly misplaced the apostrophe in numerous words. Whoever wrote the threats did the exact same thing repeatedly. Analysts call this apostrophe reversal. This is exceedingly rare, yet we find it in both the Q documents and the K. Another common feature between Chris Coleman's writings and the question samples were the misspellings of what are called fused words. Something like book tour is formed as one word instead of two. The writer did the same thing with the words good time and a variety of other words that in context would normally be separated. The writer of the question documents and Chris Coleman both had a lot of trouble with fused and unfused words. But perhaps most telling, in both sets of writings, the writer always misspelled the word opportunity. The suspected killer had misspelled opportunities in the death threats that the family had received. And they had gone back and looked at writings from Chris Coleman and found that Chris also spelled opportunities in the same way that the killer had. In May of 2009, Chris Coleman went to trial. A horrifying but very real tale of sex lives and murder in suburbia. The married Chris wanted to start a new life with his mistress, but he was afraid of losing his job. The jury was told a story that nearly defied belief. 
If Chris Coleman sent the threatening messages, that meant he'd spent six months planning to kill his family. This video was shot by his neighbor's security camera the day before the murders. Chris Coleman played catch with his sons. Thinking back at the, the timeline of that is just haunting. In fact, prosecutors believe Chris took off work the day before the murders to spend one final day with his children, knowing that within hours, he would kill them. Joyce Meyer testified that Chris Coleman was such a dedicated employee that he did not miss a day of work for 11 years. Until May 4th, the day before the murder, Chris Coleman called in sick. Joyce Meyer said that was the only time she could ever remember Chris Coleman calling in sick. According to prosecutors, Chris waited until everyone was asleep. They believe he killed his wife first. The evidence shows she fought for her life. Once she was out of the way, he strangled his sons. As one of the newspapers said, the wife fought back. The little boys did not, but why should they? It was just their father. In an attempt to throw off police, Chris spray-painted the threats all over the house, with paint later tied back directly to his credit card. He opened the back window to create a fake way for the killer to enter the house. Then he left for the gym in an attempt to create an alibi. What he failed to realize was that in all the time it took for him to stage the scene, rigor mortis began to take hold of his victims. And that, say prosecutors, exposed his story as a lie. Chris Coleman never thought anything through. Having had all that ego swelled by being Joyce Meyer's bodyguard, I think that was why he thought he could pull this off and thought it was okay. It's like you end one world, one life, and it, that includes the people in it, to start a new one. Chris, do you have any comments? In 2011, Chris Coleman was found guilty of three counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Tara Lintz was found to have no connection to the murders. Despite the overwhelming evidence, Chris Coleman still claims he's not the killer. It serves a purpose to maintain his innocence. Perhaps if he's going to be in jail no matter what, playing the card of the innocent victim, which is essentially the role he's played since this happened, he's been the victim. You know, his family was killed. He's the poor husband and father who lost everybody he loved. It was not one single thing that convicted him. It was a death by a thousand blows. This is a case of why good police work is so important and good police work really happened in this case. Every single police investigator in this case found one thing that helped lead back to Chris. 